what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, you know what we haven't done for a long time? Dance together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can arrange that. But the other thing we haven't done for a long time is new ads. Yeah, okay, let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. All right, we've got to start with the OG. We always start with the OG. Yeah. But he's good to start with. The odds are wiener. Yep. The wiener himself. Yep. The original sponsor of the show, Mm. the man who wanted to sponsor us from episode one and we told him to fuck off and then later we're like, hey, we'll take some of that money now, please. (laughs) Grumpiest but most lovable prick you could ever meet in your life. Yeah, it's the Einzer wiener. Yep. Jason Furman, Mm. Einswick Dog Quip. If you're in Australia, that's where you're getting your stuff. Yeah. Crazy if you don't get, pretty much, if you want dog stuff, get it from there. Have you seen that he hand makes a lot of his stuff as well? I've seen that. He tags me in his Instagram. I know. Me too. I see it. He's using his sewing machine. Yep playing his songs. He's really embracing social media these days. Yep. He used to have nothing at all, yep. a shit website, yep. but now, now he's got a working website and social media. I like watching him use his sewing machine. Next thing I know, he'll be making linen on a loom. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> hey, you know who else sponsors the show? Who? Your wife. She does. Yeah. Canine Suticles. Yep. The best dog suticles. <laughs> the best canine suticles. Premium grade. Yep. Human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting yeah, it. Yeah, it's great shit. There's been hot demand for her to get this all over the world. Like mm-hmm. people are asking her from every country. She's looking into it at the moment. Okay. So that's going to happen. All right. I caught up with George Kittridge and saw the actual Rowdy Hound box. I know. Yeah. So I had a good talk with George actually about his process in getting this thing to market. Yep. It's a motherfucker. So you should, if you want one, you should get one because- George has put a lot of work into turning this dream into a reality. He and did so much R and D, didn't he? Oh, huge! And yeah. the the product is amazing. Yep, so and he's got one. training videos, everything showing. He trains and supports people how to get the dog into it. Yep. how to make it safe. Yep. how to make the dog have a good experience from so it. So, if you ride a motorbike and you have a dog, you need the Rowdy Hound dog box on the back of that motorbike. Absolutely. Next, Fabian Romo. Yes, he's got a shop, Mojo. And you've seen it. I've been in there. You've I stole a tug. Yeah. I stole a tug. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd said as I was leaving, I'm taking this. Yep. So I guess it doesn't count. But yeah, Mojo Doggy. Did you pay for it? I mean. With your time. Yeah. So it's not really a theft. Yeah. Okay. Everything's fine. If you need dog gear in North America, that's where to get it. Mojo. Yeah. yeah. They've got everything. What he has, to be honest, is the best dog trainers shop. Yep. It's without a doubt the best shop that I've walked into where you can buy actual dog trainer gear. Yep. Yeah, high quality e-collars, mills, leashes, you know, all the things. Like proper tugs, like all the actual things that real dog trainers use. Mm. Mojo, get it there. We have a new sponsor also. We do. Yeah. Daniel Trapino. Trapino, yeah, that sounds about right. Daniel Trapino. It's Dog Club, South Australia. Yeah. What does he do there? It's kind of like a little hangout hood that he's created there. A little cultural hub. A little cultural hub in South Australia. So I think that's what Daniel was trying to go for, was to try and embrace and build the culture in South Australia. Because I will be honest, it's been sadly lacking for many, many years. Mm. Like not much really canine came out of South Australia. So I think it doesn't mean there aren't good dog trainers down there. There's some very good dog trainers and personalities down in South Australia, but they've never really... 
elevated it. And I think that's what Daniel wants to do. He really wants to push it out into the public forefront. Get in there, South Australians. Get into the Dog, dog Club, Club. SA. We must never forget Dan Croft. Dan Croft in Canada. What a good yeah. bloke he is. I love speaking to Dan as well. Yeah. Great facility. Great facility. Really emphasizing his puppy training programs. Mm-hmm. I just put an ad up today on Instagram showing a little Dobeman doing his little course running around. But that's what he really wants to emphasize on the critical period of development in young dogs and puppies. But it's not only that. I mean, it's all working breeds. As I've said before, as you've said before, very impressive to watch all of these dogs on BOSU balls, balancing and all of the breeds that other people usually are shying away from. He's got like a whole room full of them there. Great shop, great setup, great social media. I really like the Dan Croft setup. Our last person. Who? Barbara DeGroote. Oh, lovely Barbara. Yeah, the sugar mama. From the heart dog training. Yeah. She didn't really want to emphasize. She just said, here, have some cash. Yeah. So we just want to say thank you, Barbara. We do want to say thank you, Barbara. Thank you for supporting us. You're wonderful. We do love you. On with the show. Indeed. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Nice and slowly. Well done, sir. Yeah, I said it correctly that time. <laughs> Second attempt at starting the podcast. It's not a good look when I can't even say your name the first time around, but we cut that out. You, no one needs to know. No one needs to know, but they do now. Here we are three times in a row. This is a record, I Can think. you believe it? We used to do this all the time. We used to get to see each other all the time. And then post-COVID, life got in the way. Like yep. Things started happening. Moving and shaking started to happen around the world again, which is good. It's yep. good. It's yep. a good thing. It mm. is. Speaking of moving around the world, I just drove back from Leeton last night, yep. 12 hours in the car, each like back and forth, six hours each way, listened to an audio book that was prescribed to us by Joe Hodge. Yes, Joe. Yep. I'm actually wearing Joe's T-shirt right now. Yeah. There you go. Oh, I've, there you are. You do it too. I've got Hodge Canine. I love yeah. this T-shirt. It I is love a the, fantastic T-shirt. I love the quality of the T-shirt. So like I. the material is good yep. and I love his logo. I love it too. Yeah. I actually had to tell him one time, I think, I can't remember if I told him privately or it was on the podcast. I had two. I had both of the the Black Mallies like unruly, like no control over him walking down the street wearing his shirt. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, well played, sir. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. <laughs> it's better People than People like, are you a dog trader? I was like, yeah. <laughs> yep, my name's Joe Hodge. Yeah, this is my company. Look me up. <laughs> anyway, he, after we were talking a couple of episodes ago about children mm. and stuff, thought we were actually talking in reference to Punished by Rewards, a book, because one of the things I said was almost a direct quote from the book. Yes. And no, I hadn't read it. And so I since have, or I didn't read it. I listened to it in that 12-hour car journey. And it was quite interesting. It's an interesting book. The premise of it is really that behaviorism, you know, it makes the case against behaviorism. Right. And like one of the things that I sometimes talk about when I speak about things is like I'm fascinated by Skinner in many ways. Mm. I think that he's this amazing character that was really right about many things and gave us much, but also was incredibly wrong about other things. And when you look at it, gave us something actually that's not that tangibly easily to use, you know, like, so to anybody that's ever taught operant conditioning to somebody who's totally unfamiliar with it, 
And I still remember having to struggle with this myself the first time that I looked at that positive and negative and trying to understand those as adding and subtracting. And even the very first time I heard the idea of positive punishment, you know, mm, I was mm. like, what is like, how can that be a thing? You yeah, know? the matrix is confusing the first time you're presented with it. It, it, is, it is something that is often played out of order in your own mind. It yeah. doesn't mean that you're not doing it the correct way. Mm-hmm. Understanding and comprehending where you are in each of those quadrants is difficult to grasp until it sets in your mind, like until it's explained enough times and it finally sits with you. It dawns on you. That's the word I was looking for. It finally dawns on you what it actually is. I was actually quite fortunate because I had Boyd explaining it to me. Mm -hmm. I was intimidated by it by the first time because he had a very good grasp of it Mm -hmm. and explained it very well. Even though he did explain it very well, I didn't grasp it immediately. So I didn't want to say that. I didn't Mm. want to admit that I didn't understand it. I just wanted to go with the flow and say, oh, yeah, cool beans, I've got it. Foolish thing to do for anybody in the industry. My advice to you is if you don't know something, own up to it. Just say, Mm. look, I'm not really sure of what that is. That's really the best way to do. Don't repeat a mistake that you've initially taken on because I think it was probably – the third time I heard him lecture it and then I got to see it pragmatically played out, mm. that's when it started to make sense to me. That Warrior Scholar project that I did when I went to college in the States, yeah. that's how that actually came to fruition was a guy I knew actually was Was at, that at Yale? The one yeah, you the did one Yale? I did at yep. Yale, yeah. Yep. But they do it at all the Ivy League schools now. Yep. Well, I haven't stayed up to date with it and my friend's no longer involved with it. So I'm, I, I presume they still do it. I still get the odd email that I delete from them. But um, <laughs> but that program was born of having mature age students, especially veterans, in classes with these kids. Because mm. what they found, I think we'd spoken about this in the past, what they found is that, you know, to go to Yale, for example, right, like those kids were the smartest people in their class prior to going to Yale. When they were at high school, they were leagues ahead of everybody else in their class. Mm. And then they go to a class full of people like them and they're learning at a very high level and no one will admit that they don't know what's going on. Right. And so mm. th- they have these groups of kids that the you know the professor's out the front giving his lecture and you know he's it's it's super advanced stuff whatever the topic it is, you know, because they're expecting this is a very high level of intelligence in this room. And if they lose the crowd, Nobody in the crowd will admit it. And what happened, what they found is when they had a couple of like mature age students come in, which was rare to have those at those schools and especially, you know, to have army veterans or, or you know, at least defense force and of some capacity veterans in the class, the culture is completely different whereby you never pretend you understand something you don't in those cultures. Like mm. that's really drilled out of people. And so my friend in the class would be like, whoa, stop, stop. I'm lost. I don't get it. And they'd see this sigh of relief around the room, <laughs> right? Because no one was prepared to admit it. Everyone was lost. Yeah. But no one was prepared to admit it. And that's why they were like, oh, we need to encourage more of these people. We need to try and actually get one in each class. And exactly like they did with me, they're like, even if you're not on the course, we just need you to sit in the class and try and follow. Your aptitude test tells us that you are smart enough to be here. You should be able to follow the program, but you'll admit when you don't get it. And so you had all these these. People like me just throwing their hand in the air going like, I'm lost, just start again. And all these kids like, oh, thank God someone said it. That's great. I appreciate that. And I think that that's great of a student to be able to have the courage to stand up and do that. It is sometimes, and I'm saying this respectfully, but I think it's a failing on the teacher not to acknowledge that to begin with because 
I've been guilty but, you of know, that. university's mature age learning. It's like, it here's is. the info, keep up or don't. Yeah, it, that's true and that's fair, but so is the NDTF. The NDTF yeah. is mature age learning. I mean, you pay for the course, you can come and go as you want. Mm-hmm. It's up to you. But as a lecturer, I don't want my students not to know what I'm teaching. Sure, so if I can see that they're lost or even if they're not lost, I will start asking questions back of – it's basically like a small knowledge mm-hmm. test. I'll start to say, since we've done this, explain it back to me. Mm-hmm. That way I can actually assess the group immediately and they can alert me to the fact that they either do know it or they don't. And if they don't know it, what we do is we randomise how we explain it until everybody catches up with it. I don't blame Boyd for me not picking it up on it straight away. I blame myself because it's never that he made me feel foolish or stupid or said, you know, like if you don't keep up, it's bad luck. It's just that I never asked and I kind of thought, well, I don't want people to think that I'm the odd one out. Mm. And I wasn't. There was multiples of us. I think in the first time that I ever did it, that lecture with him back then, there was probably half the class that had no idea what he was talking about. Mm. And we were just sort of playing along with it. But he'd read Lindsay's books back then. He was really engrossed in – I mean, he was reading literally everything. He was devouring every scientific journal that actually came out, which when you were talking about Skinner before, in reference to Skinner – And when you listen to Roger Abranti's talking, a lot of the times we're dealing with the science of now and that's the issue that we have at hand. And back then when we're talking the 60s when Skinner was involved in Mm. a lot of the mainstream work that he was doing, that was before you and I were even born. Mm. You know, that was even when our parents were young children. You Mm. know, like they were teenagers when that sort of shit was starting to become mainstream. Mm. And when you consider that, especially for me, that's a a long time ago, Mm. you know. So we're talking... 50, 60 years ago. Yeah, up to of, 70 years ago. Yeah, yeah, and it was the science of then. Yeah. So, of course, a lot of things have changed. A lot of people have come in and a lot more minds, computers are actually crunching numbers now. So look at what's going to happen to us with AI. We're on the dawn of something magnificent or terrifying. 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 It's terrifying. Do you yeah. see the thing I posted the other day? About the drone killing its operators? The drone tried to kill its operator. And then yeah. they, within the simulation, so, well, they're denying this, right? Okay, yeah. But the story was that it was a, a predator drone. Yeah. So it was a simulation. It wasn't a real drone. It, it's all within the computer. Right. And the way that it works is like a point system, right? So completing its mission is the maximum points it can score. Yep. And so then when they tried to abort the mission, it was like, no, I want to complete the mission because doing what it's told by its operator serves a certain number of points. Yep. But completing the mission is the maximum points. And the whole point of having an AI drone is that it can solve problems along the way. Yep. So it identified its operator telling it no longer to complete the mission as keeping a mission vulnerability. Yep. No, not, not just keep it on the leash, but as a mission vulnerability, because it's not true AI and like, it's not thinking it's not like a artificial general intelligence where it has like a personality and is solving problems in accordance with its own values and beliefs. It's, it's creating values and beliefs. Yeah, well, its values mm. and beliefs were created by it and it's just playing a point game mm. of like I have to score the maximum amount of points and I will solve problems along the way to solve the points. Yep. So a vulnerability within the system was that completing the mission was the maximum available points. And so following directions from its operator – was high value to it, but not as high as completing the mission. And so when the when the operator tried to abort the mission, it recognized that as a critical vulnerability and went back and tried to kill its operator. Mm. And so, so then they go, okay, well, that's a total failure. If you kill the operator, then that's a total point loss. That's worse than not completing the mission. So then it fucking bombed the comms tower that the operator was communicating with it with. <laughs> oh, and so it was like, well, I can't kill you because that doesn't score me the points, but I can stop your ability to communicate with me. Have you ever seen 
Wow. Um, yeah. Have, yeah. Have you ever seen Doctor Strange Love, the movie? Yes, I That's have. almost the fucking plot of yep. Doctor Strange Love, where mm. it's not AI, but it's a pilot who is on his way to drop a nuclear bomb that is thinks he's doing the right thing, is just like on the mission, and his communication system gets damaged and they can't stop him. And it's a it, he's not meant to be doing it. And he is so committed to the cause that he's like, fuck it, I'm going in. They try and shoot him down, all kinds of things. Turns out that he's the best pilot ever, <laughs> evades everybody. They <laughs> the, the movie is incredible. They call all like so it's a, a rogue general decides that it's an old Stanley Kubrick movie. If you haven't seen it, you've like for people listening, it's an incredible movie. Most people now would find it boring, right? Mm. But the plot of it is incredible is that it's a rogue general that decides fuck it when nuking Russia, right? And lo- like tells his own base and everybody on it that we've been attacked by Russia, we have to attack them. And that they've infiltrated the US government. And so people trying to stop us will look like our own people, yeah. right? Because he's trying to trick them all into it. So pretty quickly they overrun the base and everybody gets told like, hey, turn around. This is not the fucking situation. Like this is this is wrong. Except but this one this amazing one, maverick pilot. Yeah, this one pilot who's mm. on his way to nuke Russia. Yep. And so they call the Kremlin and say, hey, this guy's on his way. This is what's happened. We're handling it, but it's possible that he's going to get you. Mm. And I think they initially asked for permission to enter their airspace to shoot their own guy down. Mm. They're like, don't worry. We're going to shoot him down. We will kill him. We're not going to allow him to nuke you. But just in case, you got to know what's going on. And they go, that's cool, but we have the doomsday device. And they're like, what do you mean? They're like, if you nuke us, we nuke you back and we can't stop it. So you really need to stop him. And then they're like, we'll turn it off. And like, if we turn it off, it nukes you. So you have to stop this guy because what we've been hiding is like, the, you know, you've heard the rumors about the doomsday device. It's legit and you have to stop him. That's right. And, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. But then what's, you know, the sort of sad insight into it all is they're still intelligence gathering on each other the whole mm. time. Like, even though they're meant to be now working together and what was meant to be this thing of them bringing it together, they're still fucking each other in the background. Surprise, but anyway, surprise. Back to AI. And that's my <laughs> Dr. Strange. It's an incredible movie if you haven't seen it you absolutely should it's very yeah, old it's, but it's an incredible film mm. so back to behavioral sciences <laughs> <laughs> talking about skinner's time in the office which was more than five business days ago mm-hmm. to the younger generation who are now poo-pooing a lot of what he does mm. i know times have moved on and you being a former soldier active former soldier the way that our grandfathers fought warfare in the second world war would be almost alien landscape to them now. Mm. It would be completely different. It would have echoes and there would be history that modern soldiers would learn from, but the weaponry, the strategic capability, even plotting things with drones and yeah, yeah. there's a whole bunch of technology and, again, even with AI and everything stepping into that realm now, like there's a big change that would have happened and it's the same for Skinner. For what he did and what he uncovered during that process was brilliant. Yeah. It's fucking brilliant. Yeah, but I think like – of Skinner and the criticisms of him in the book, and it's it's ones that I've held prior, is that the act like yes, he was he was not the first. He stole not stole, but like the the puzzle box. Thorndike not Thorndike. Watson had the puzzle box. Yep. And then suddenly it's a Skinner box. Yeah. Right. Like <laughs> like no, I'm not calling it a puzzle box. I'm calling it a Skinner box. It was like oh okay. You just described every dog trainer and their website. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but also like in parallel times there was conflicting schools of thought. The things that we've since learned about ethology and genetics and stuff like that, there was that information. Not maybe not at the genetic level, but there was that information available to him at the time that he was like, no, that's not. 
I don't accept that as accurate. One of the amazing quotes of Skinner, and, and they use it in the in the book, is that Skinner even didn't believe that love existed. He said that like what we call love is that an individual meets another one who offers them some form of praise, which they find reinforcing. Then when they offer reinforcement back, the two people just continually pass back and forth reinforcement and they become so enamored by the reinforcement they receive from each other that that's what love is. The problem with that is that it's the concept or the construct of a person who's very clinical in everything yeah, they do. Yeah. And he know, probably was a psychopath. Yes. I would say that there was probably a range of lacking emotions. Yeah. Like he was he was definitely different and he almost like even the way his head looks, it's very different than what <laughs> most people look. He had this enormous cranium. Yeah. But the more that I hear people describing Skinner and like the sort of beyond you know, because for us and most people in the industry, all we know is like opera and conditioning, right? Yep. That's what came with Skinner. And there's a Skinner box. That's as far as we go into understanding it. But he wrote a lot of papers, did a lot of things. Mm. And the more that I have looked into him, the more I think this guy probably was a psychopath. You know, 5% of people are psychopaths. Psychopaths are not always the violent people that we imagine that they are, right? No, they're like just very lacking in empathy and emotion yeah, of other people. Like yeah. they're very uncaring. Yeah, and they form, you know, like when you think evolutionarily, psychopaths have, form, like have play a, a quite an important role to us, right? Mm. Like we, we do kind of need them. And you can imagine the example they use when talking about that is like hundreds of years ago or whatever when we're small tribes and we have to go to war with the opposing tribe or we're considering going to war with the opposing tribe and – you know, we consider the costs and the toll and like we have to think like, fuck, this is going to cost us a lot even if we win. Even if we win, there's the trauma of having blah, 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 all of that. Let's sleep on it. And when he, in the morning, if you're a tribe of 100 people, in the morning, three of your five psychopaths come back and they're like, don't worry, we've taken care of the problem. Mm. And they'll never have PTSD over it. You'll never even know that there was a problem that they did. Two of them got killed. They don't care. Right. Yep. Like it's like, no, we solved the issue. Don't worry about it. So like for them, it, it was just a Tuesday. Yeah, totally. Mm. And it, they'll never have problems over it. And so having your own psychopath that is endeared to you because of the reinforcers that you can give to them yep. is probably evolutionary, quite necessary and successful that you can have your own that you point. And like, trust me, I know many of them. <laughs> well, right? if, if you look at the movie Troy, for argument's sake, I mean, it's a movie, but it's based on real facts. But if you look at the concept of Achilles, he was probably a psychopath. He was just somebody who, you know, like we've got someone for you to kill. He just turns up. Oh, yeah, I've just killed someone who, you know, if we yeah. go to war, we go to war. Cool yeah. beans. But I'm happy to be the guy in the middle who just jukes it out with this guy and then I'll go back and do what I was doing. Yeah. No harm, no foul. And I've often thought of that when I've looked at people like that is that they seem to have a really easy off switch yeah. where other people suffer for it. You know, yeah. like they leave it afterwards and it's an echo that reruns in their mind. Yeah. You know, like I shouldn't have done that. I could have done it better and yeah and oh, they mate, suffer for it trust me i've known plenty i know plenty yeah. that are very functional high functioning people hyper intelligent and are the kind of break glass in case of an emergency yeah and then but what is different about them to others is that they get back in the glass box afterwards because they're like that's done and i have no feelings about it yep. it's not going to be an issue anyway and you're right on. for certain things it's necessary yeah yeah so maybe skinner was one of those i don't know mm. but this huge critique of behaviorism itself and the oversimplification of it is what this book is about. Jeez, mm. we strayed a long way from the book. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot what we were even beginning to talk about. <laughs> punished by rewards. Yeah, punished mm. by rewards. You and I were talking about this before. I know that I brought this up in conversation. It's something that was a very tangible learning moment for me when I perceived a reinforcement to a former 
employee where I thought what I was doing by giving them a bonus was going to make them really happy. But what I didn't allow for was because it was less than what they thought they deserved and had a belief in their mind of what they'd earned, when I gave it to them, it was actually punishing to them. And the way that they responded to me was quite, I at the time I found it outrageous. Like mm. I thought, wow, you ungrateful so-and-so. Mm-hmm. But then I realized, well, this is actually a real teachable moment. Right at the time I was focusing on the insult rather than the lesson. Mm-hmm. What I try and do as much as I can now when I sort of get over the initial shock of some human behaviours that happen, especially from some ostentatious people that you deal with, what I often look at now is what's the teachable moment in this? Mm-hmm. What, what am I learning? What have I taken away from this? What can I do better next time? How can I prevent this from happening again? Because I'm more reflective on that, I try and manifest that into my dog training practices as well. When I'm out with my dogs, I'm thinking a lot more. Conversations that you and I have had, conversations that we've had with guests on the show, some very intellectual thoughts have gone into how to do it better, how to think through it rather than just do it, Mm -hmm. rather than insist is probably the key phrase that I'm trying to come up with. Perception, deep perception, understanding, you know, like looking through the lens of their lens on you. You're looking at them, but they're looking back at you and you've got to sort of meet in the middle to understand how is this relationship going to work for both of us? Mm. What I'm asking is not just something that I need or want, and I'm not just parking a motorcycle. I'm actually asking a physiological deep thinking entity to perform something and it's got to be valuable for them at the same time. Mm. Originally, it was never suggested not to, but we just never did think of it as much as what we are and what we seem to be and appear to be now. I think the carryover of the conversations that we've had with people from the other side of training, the plus R type of training, it has been a good interjection of different thought processes of looking at it and analyzing it from a different spectrum because most of the time we have a perception. Like I keep saying to people at work, when we're talking about work-related thing, perception is very powerful. Mm. You might think that you're on a tangent and have a strong belief on something until you get schooled by the other side, Mm. until you start seeing a movement in behavior of the individual, the mass, and then you realize I was wrong. Mm. It's almost like a religious belief in something where you think, no, I'm steadfast in this belief. I'm not going to change. This is the way that it has to be because I perceive it this way. When I see people stuck in those processes, which I have been myself in the past, I now feel sorry for them. Mm. I now have sympathy for them or even empathy for them because They're not learning anymore. They're fixated on something that they perceive is real without actually trying to identify it in a different realm. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I I know what you mean. I think sometimes we see people get attached to their ideas a little bit heavily. Yes. And and then to attack the idea is to attack them, you know, to to question the idea or to not like the idea or to- Is insulting. To them as a- at their core, you know, like, because yep. if you are your, even your thoughts, then to attack your thoughts, then is to attack you directly. Mm. It's no secret that I'm pretty into that kind of spirituality stuff. And so divorcing yourself from your own thoughts and realizing that you're not the thinker of your thoughts, you are the awareness of your thoughts. That's a big step. That's a big leap to take. It's constant work, you yep. know, like it, you're never finished in that department. It's constantly sort of reminding yourself. One of the things that's interesting, this is a, it's an Epictetus thing actually, where to when you lose an argument, right? You're actually the winner. 
because if you had a shit idea, if me and you go head to head on an idea and you turn out to be correct, well, I'm the winner of the situation because I just had my stupid thinking realigned. Mm. You know what I mean? And, yeah. But that's a really difficult thing to come to terms with because you think of yourself in terms of if me and you hold differing opinions and through dialogue, back and forth, conversation, I realize, shit, you're correct and I'm not. First of all, there's this huge challenge in even admitting that, right, and then not holding resent towards you for showing the flaws of my thinking. But when you can get past that and you understand like, well, I'm not my thoughts, you're not attacking me. I'm the awareness of those thoughts and I can be aware that my thoughts are stupid, mm. right? Or that they're wrong or that yours are better and that I should realign to have similar ones because mm. they're more successful or they're in line with that. It turns out actually that they're better in line with my values or, or and, you know, whatever, however it goes. It can be really difficult, but quite necessary to then go, oh, well, Thank you. <laughs> Even though you won the argument, I win at life because now I have your correct thought pattern and I get to carry on with that. Yeah. Right? But you don't see that on the internet. That's what's fucking no, damn no. sure. <laughs> it, it's funny you say that. I had a good conversation with one of the reception staff the other day who really had a difficult customer and they were really finding it hard to process the conversation that they just had with them. And them and I had a conversation afterwards and I said, don't feel that that was directed at you. In fact, every other call that comes in, it's not directed at you. It's about their lack of feeling contented when something isn't going right in their life or something didn't work out or something happened to their dog as a result of the stay or whatever it was. Don't feel it's directed at you. It's directed at the company. It's not you personally. Mm. You're just the mouthpiece that's front of line. You are the embodiment of the company, but exactly. you are not the company. Yeah, that's right. You don't have to absorb it into your soul and directly take it home with you. And I said, what I did and the way that I felt better about this, because I'm, I've sat in exactly the same shoes as you did some time ago where I felt very directly insulted for it. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, why not make a game out of it? Why not make a challenge? Why not see how hard I can spin this round, how deep I can turn this into a 180? Try and resolve all the issues of the person as much as I can before I need to refer it on. And I said, when I started doing that, it was more like solving a puzzle. Mm -hmm. And solving the puzzle wasn't actually stressful. It started to become fun. Mm -hmm. I started like writing notes when the person was talking to me and started trying to work out how do I spin this in a positive direction now. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people just need to be heard for a period of time before the healing starts taking place. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of funk that happens around that type of thinking and it starts with the way that you're processing sometimes. And again, you know, like when we – as I mentioned previously, perception is very, very powerful and it's something that people aren't willing to sit back and take in. You know, you made a really salient point just then when you were talking about taking on somebody else's correct thoughts. I mean, how powerful is that when you might be trying to design something? Like imagine two mathematicians sitting there and one's got the answers and one hasn't and they get into an argument about it and then the one who's right gives all the answers to the other one and then they go on and think, holy shit, I was so wrong in my thinking. And then they go on to make amazing mathematical discoveries based on the correction that that person actually gave them at the time. Yeah. I mean, that's brilliant. That's mm. that's a fantastic way of thinking. For sure. It's a funny one, especially arguments over thoughts. Like I had an argument with a guy one time. It's one of the few times in the army ever where it very nearly went to fisticuffs with a guy one time, right? Yeah. And as I said to him, I was like, mate, if you want, like as he was kind of shaping up to me, 
It was like, if you want, we can go and fight over this, but that's not going to change. And you'll probably beat me because I can't fight for shit and you can, but it doesn't change that I'm right. <laughs> so like we will, we will be winning two separate fights here. Mm. There might be a physical fight that you might win, but the intellectual argument is dusted, mate. Like it's over. I've mm. beat you. Like I'm correct about this and you're angry because of that. And like, if you want to have the physical fight, well, let's fucking play that out. But that's not going to change the fact that I'm right about the situation that we're in. Fortunately, it diffused the situation. It didn't come to me getting beat up. Have you seen the three-part series on Arnold Schwarzenegger on Netflix? I haven't, but I've read his book. It was a little bit, especially the last one, it's a little bit of a tearjerker. For me, it was. I found that it was, well, I'm going to throw up a spoiler. So if you're going to watch it, here is a little bit of a spoiler on the three-part Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary on Netflix. The very first part is talking about his career as a bodybuilder. Mm -hmm. So he goes into how he was inspired like a young boy. He talks about his family, his mother. Mm -hmm. His mother was a obsessive compulsive cleaner, like Mm -hmm. scrub the floors of hands and knees, pick things out of the grooves in the floor. Father was very lack of involved with him and his brother. Mm-hmm. He said that they he often got scolded and beaten and, and never really felt like he'd lived up to anything. And his he, father's a cop, wasn't he? I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and think, he was a World War II veteran. Yeah. yeah. And his brother was the darling of the family. So yeah. Arnold wasn't. He was yeah. the black sheep of the family. Mannheim was his brother's name, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't paying that much attention to the name of his brother because I haven't read the book. I saw the documentary. It goes on and it shows his career path and he said how he was really inspired by Sir Edmund Hillary that Mm -hmm. when he got to the top of Mount Everest, when he first climbed it and he was the first officially documented person to do so, that reporters and people who were interested in his exploits said, when you got to the top of the mountain, what did you think? And he said, when I was up there and I was looking around, I saw all the other peaks of the other mountains and I was thinking, now how do I get across and climb up them? Mm -hmm. Arnold thought, well, what an inspiring quote, you know, and he, he said that became the precipice of my life. That's what I wanted to do. In a nutshell, I'm just going to sort of arrive at the end of, of the point because it goes on to talk about his time in bodybuilding, his time as the leading, one of the highest paid and highest ranking leading men in Hollywood action movies, mm-hmm. meeting Maria Shriver from the Kennedys and, mm-hmm. and marrying her and having children. And then Does he talk about how she stitched him up? In what way? She invited him to the Kennedy ranch one time after this tennis tournament. Oh, yeah. And they were there for like three days and all he had was a pair of shorts. Yes, he was playing and then he had to go to church with his Yeah, and, and, and no, no clothes at yes. the Kennedy ranch would fit him. And yes, so he, he did talk about that. for three days and nothing but a pair of shorts and she was parading him around. He did say that. He talked about how he had to go to church with yeah. the matriarch of the Kennedy family. Yeah. It finally gets into the last series. So it's three parts. It finally gets in the last series where it talks about his time in politics and so forth. And in the last half of it, you see a person who admires a lot of his accomplishments and feels very good about it, but then also understands a lot of the things that he fucked up along the way mm-hmm. in his life, considering that he had the affair with the housekeeper and he had his other son Mm -hmm. who he loves. And he said, I don't want him to feel like the world doesn't love him and appreciate him. He said, I love him very much. He's my son. He talks about how he wished he didn't do the things that he did in some of those aspects. I guess the point that probably gave me a kick in the balls over it was it made me think of my father Mm -hmm. because my father was very successful and a little bit flamboyant about his success and so forth. But when I saw him dying, like the last time I actually saw him alive, it was 
a broken and very apologetic person, a person that no more pride, no more ego. They kind of realize that, yeah, I, I enjoyed those times, but I don't enjoy them thinking back on them now. Mm. It kind of fucking sucks that people get to a stage in their life where they don't realize the hurtful things they're doing while they're having the highlights of those times. Mate, I've been like that myself. Mm. I've had things that I've done and said that I wish I could recall. I wish I could have stopped it. But I know that's life and that's part of being a juvenile, an adolescent, a silly adult, or even a mindless person sometimes. I don't think there's a person that exists on the planet that doesn't have those recollections about their behaviours and their thoughts and so forth. But it struck a nerve in me when I saw him, you know, he's an older guy now. He talks about that fact that he had the heart attack and mm-hmm. all the insurance companies watching him like a hawk to find out, to see whether or not he was going to die on the set. I thought it was a really brave thing for him to do, mm. you know, and a very vulnerable thing to somebody who has always been very powerful and exuberated strength and power in everything that he's done. But he also talked about his vulnerabilities and the things that made him feel inadequate. He often felt disgusting, even looking at his own body. He said, even though a lot of people appreciated me, I looked, used to look in the mirror and go, you fucking ugly bastard. Mm. You know, like you're just not living up to it. And he said, but those sort of things also inspired me to get better. He talked about Sylvester Stallone pushing him to become. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting how they were like hated each other rivals, but. They made each other better. Yeah. Yeah, both of them. Both said it. Sylvester appears as a guest on the show and he talks about how the two of them were bitter rivals. Like mm. they hated each other, mm. but they also loved what they were doing to each other, like how they yeah. stirred each other on. You look at a person like that who exudes confidence and like he often said, I'm a bit different than other people, you know, like my obsessions. He concluded with, I think sometimes I was trying to live up to my mother's appreciation, which I never really thought I had. Mm -hmm. That was quite a kick in the dick. Mm. That is a confronting statement for somebody like him to make. Mm. And then you realize, my God, he's mortal. You know, like you see the mortality in somebody when you realize that they're not this untouchable, unfeeling, iconic person. Like they actually have feelings and they think and feel and a lot of things um, trouble them the same way they trouble us. So I appreciated him sharing that. I really thought I've never not liked Arnold. You know, I've never not had a reason to like him. I loved all these movies. You know, I've been a a fan of his ever since he first came out. Mm -hmm. But I really appreciate him more that he got up and and stood up and said, yeah, I I did some fucking despicable things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. So the book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the book. The punchline of the whole thing is that intrinsic motivation works better than extrinsic motivation, which is like, yeah, no shit, right? Mm. And like the the point of it is that behaviorism really was designed on rats in a Skinner box yep. and pigeons and whatever else and not really people. There was an ethical point which they couldn't do it. That's the, yeah. the issue is that there's a name that they actually call the animals that they use, the, the linking animal or something like that, the linking species or I was listening to Huberman the other day and there's a really good episode with Dr. Oded Rashavi. On, it's called Genes and the Inheritance of Memories. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. And they talk about what they actually call um, the species where you couldn't experiment on human beings. Like it was just forbidden to do so mm-hmm. and still fundamentally is. I mean, even though we've just gone through a great big experimental phase, it's unethical to do so and it yeah, still yeah. wasn't those days. There were times where they were doing it, of course, you know, yeah. like there were war crimes where human experimentation well, was Well, you know, happening. those early behavioralists did that. Like Watson had that kid, Weird Albert, where they- Little Albert. Yeah, well, they end up calling him Weird Albert. And 
unfortunately, he died. Before they could reverse it, yeah. Well, well, but, you know, we never got to see how badly they fucked him up. Yeah. The notes on him are incredible. Like, it's like they showed him a rat and then scared the fuck out of him. And then before too long, they were like, look, we can, at showing him the rat, he becomes totally scared. And then, you know, made all these incredible statements about where and, you know, how it generalized and where it didn't. And, oh, look, he's scared of rabbits, but not small dogs, you know, mm. like, like all these, like, just to this real kid, yep. like to this actual little baby. And then they're like, look, and now we'll undo it. And like, oh, shit, he it's died. not working. Yeah. Well, it didn't work. They mm. were like tried to de- desensitize, counter-condition him to the rodents that they made him scared of. It didn't work. He mm. remained scared of them. And so they were like, oh, fuck. Oh, well, he's out of the study. There was a group of people who were very disenfranchised by Pavlov's work and wanted to talk about how evil classical conditioning was and the origins of the Pavlovian studies and so forth. And they just said, you know, like he's not the magician that all dog trainers think he is. He was actually, you know, involved in human rights violations. And Yeah. Um, so, Well, I mean, that's one of the huge moral and ethical dilemmas that we face is that a lot of the stuff we have, the, a lot of the information we have came to us under pretty fucking shitty conditions. Yeah, you even with I mean? animals as well. Yeah, but uh, yeah, exactly. Mm. That's one of the things that sort of pisses me off when we, we look at like modern animal studies, right? And and they're like, oh, no, those studies from the 50s are totally wrong because, look, I've done it here off of survey data. And it's like, well, actually, they tortured those animals to death and we got the fucking knowledge from it. So can we please pay some credence to it instead of looking at the survey data of a bunch of fur baby mummies who like said shit about their dog that first of all, we all know as trainers, people lie about their dogs all the time. Yeah. And second, they're probably wrong and misinterpreting the behavior of their dogs. And so that's one of the things that drives me insane when people like go, Oh no, like those old studies, as Zach George did this recently, say when Ivan made that video, like quoting all the, the science on punishment and all that. And he's like, no, but there's more up-to-date modern studies. Well, it's the burden like, on you, buddy, is to prove it. Like, yeah. In the well, field no, but and- he's just saying like because this study was done more recently, it's more more accurate. And it's like, no, that study was survey data off of nonsense. These were actual pre-ethical standards committee experiments. Nobody was looking over the shoulder of these people to see that what they were doing was fair or equitable or, or, or reasonable they were doing whatever they wanted and just writing down the outcomes of it and really trying to find out information rather than trying to prove a point. Because most animal studies these days are, or not most, I shouldn't say that, but a lot of them are survey data. Mm. Like it's useless. I don't know if it's in that episode with uh, Dr. Oded and Andrew Huberman. I can't remember where they were talking about. I certainly know that Huberman talks about how most people involved in science are involved in finding truth. But there was a conversation between two people on an interview where they were talking about the biases that scientists can have, Mm -hmm. you know, like when enough money is presented or when they feel like their grant will be cancelled if they aren't playing ball and so forth. And see, that's the thing is that, yes, I agree that most ethical scientists are searching for the truth. They're searching for the right answers. They're trying to bring to light the realities of whatever it is that they're trying to find out about. They're good ethical men and women. But there's also people out there who are unethical. There's yeah. people out there who do have a strong bias. Once they get feelings about things, it's done and dusted. Mm. That's not seeking the truth. That's presenting people with your bias. Once you have a feeling towards something like that, I don't buy into what you're trying to manifest anymore because mm. you're not neutralized to the study anymore. You now have feelings towards it, which means that you will probably gravitate towards 
how your feelings play out towards it. And that's, I find with a lot of these studies, when people are talking about animal behaviorism and so forth and consequences in using punishes, a lot of the times I feel, I feel, and I have feelings about it, but I feel that there are uh, biases because they're presenting how they feel about it rather than the facts around it. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And that's the important part of competition. That for sure is because open access to competition, but competition to an well, objective facts don't standard. care about feelings, right? Ben it, Shapiro said it the best. Exactly. That's the point of like, okay, well, let's test. You train your dog however you want to train your dog using whatever methods you like, and I'll train my dog however I want. And we set an objective test. And, you know, as is the case in, in protection sports, IGP most notably is the attitude of the dog is part of the scoring, right? Like they can drop you an entire bandwidth. You can go from a, a very good to a good because they didn't like the attitude of your dog, even though it displayed all of the correct behaviors, it did everything correctly. They can just drop you because the dog looks sad about doing it. That's the test mm. where you can go like, well, let's see whose training holds up better. Let's look at the weight of like how long it took you to get there. How it, like, you know, all the measurable things that we can look at and we can go, okay, well like prove it. That's the whole point of competition. That's the whole, that's the whole reason it exists. Yep. Anyway, back to the book. <laughs> <laughs> Intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation is mm -hmm. kind of the punchline of the whole thing is that we should be using that. And the book is really all about mostly about workplace pay structures and stuff like that and workplace incentives programs and how the author is so against those. Alpha Cohen's the author and children, a lot to do with sort of, you know, continued education of children, behavioral management of children. And it was pretty interesting, like, especially having a pretty good understanding of behaviorism, like I do and being able to, you know, having applied it for so long and with such detail into so many, as many dogs as I have to hear such a, a really strong critique of it with so many examples of where it doesn't work and how it, it appears as though it's working even when it doesn't, even it falls apart afterwards is mm. essentially what he says, which is all stuff that we kind of know because like even within behaviorism, we know that like when we talk about extinction, behaviors go unreinforced, go extinct. Yep. And so when you stop providing the reinforcers, the subject stops doing the thing that leads to reinforcers unless there's some sort of intrinsic motivation. And even when there isn't an intrinsic motivation, we're hoping that we've built a habit or something like that. What it gave me cause to think about was two things, I think, in fact, but it all comes down to the one, is reinforcing with the appropriate drive. So to go away from kids and workplace you know, situations, because we're, we're the many things podcast this episode, but, yeah, yeah. but back to dogs, is that I think one of the things that is interesting to me, and we've touched on it a few times, is when people are trying to provide reinforcement via like, you know, positive reinforcement, click and give it a piece of food in a situation where that is very much extrinsic motivator. In that moment, the dog is not wanting food. Of course he'll take it and he'll mm. find it reinforcing and he'll do things that will lead to it in the future, but that's not necessarily the best way to actually reinforce a dog. Specifically, it made me think quite a lot about socialization mm -hmm. and a lot about you know, just lifestyle skills and especially pet dog training stuff. For the most part, I don't do a lot of pet dog training anymore. I've done fucking tons of it and I'm in the fortunate position now of being able to choose the kind of stuff that I do because I have enough people asking for my help and the things that I really like doing is sport dog type stuff and yep. police and military type stuff. So I'm very, in a, you know, so it's not for lack of interest in pet dog training or experience in it that I'm not doing it currently. And I still, of course, am doing bits and pieces of it here and there. And 
almost all of the sport dogs and certainly a lot of the police dogs that I train are also pets as well. They Well, they're not necessarily, like especially with the police dogs, they're not necessarily a pet, but they live the life of a pet. They live in the house with people. Mm. They have to be able to navigate society out of drive and yep. out of work, Yep. right? And I think one of the things that I see, I saw a really interesting critique of us talking about use of motivation and the use, you know, it was a, a critique of a clip that I had from years ago, actually online. And I'm talking about building motivation and, you know, using that motivation in order to, you know, leverage the and reinforce the behaviors that we want. Mm. And it was interesting to see because of the language that I used in that video, because like I imagine my audience is people who are training dogs to do things. I don't imagine my audience as the average pet dog owner. I don't think that we have a lot of reach. Like, of course there's people listening and there's probably people, you know, kicking their dashboard now saying I'm one of those. But the majority of the people listening to us are training enthusiasts. They're either trying to fix a problem with their dog and that's how they've come upon us or they're working towards something with their dog and that's how they've come upon us, right? They're people who are industry people. And so the language that I use and the way that I frame those explanations is in terms of like build the drive, use that drive to teach the behaviors because the behaviors are that's where you're headed with your dog. Mm. That's what you want to do. But I think one thing that I don't talk about much and wanted to sort of open the conversation a little bit about was this idea of like lifestyle skills. And one of the things I see, and certainly I agree with the critique of us, although I don't think it was at, of the critique of me anyway, and I don't think it was understood well, but it's a critique of training that's fair, is that too much there's in the dog training space, there's too much reliance on behavioralism in the sort of black and white form of positive reinforcement being give the dog a cookie, right? And punishment being crank the dog with the prong collar. Mm. And I think that's the lens through which we see much, right? And I think that in those lifestyle skills, which is the overwhelming majority of dogs that are being trained are being trained for lifestyle skills, right? It's just to continue being a pet because they're right now, they're either not doing a good job of being someone's pet, they're, they're creating chaos in the life of the dog or of the person, or people are just setting up in order to make sure that they don't be derailed, right? Like that's kind of our bread and butter. And the thing when I was thinking about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation is that food, for example, can be an intrinsic motivator for a dog, but it can also be a very extrinsic motivator for a dog. And the reinforces that we use to, you know, increase the frequency and likelihood of a behavior and the way that we want it to happen has to be relevant to the drive that the dog is in and the drive that we want the dog to remain in and perform the behaviors in. Mm. And therefore the motivators or the reinforcers that we use have to kind of always be intrinsic motivators in order to be successful. And so in the book, he talks about how, you know, reward charts and even bonuses and all that kind of stuff, they don't work. They work in the moment. Of course, if they don't work, they're not reinforcement, right? So mm -hmm. if they increase frequency and likelihood, they do. He uses the term reward all the time. He almost never says reinforcement. He always uses reward. But within dog training, so like in human terms, those are very extrinsic motivators, right? But in dog training terms, there's a time where giving a dog a treat, giving it food is an intrinsic motivator. And if you're trying to bring on that arousal and that sort of, you know, whether you're bringing on the drive or the intensity or whatever, that is going to be reinforced by giving the application of food. Mm. And in that moment, 
That is an intrinsic motivator if the dog is attempting to pursue the food. If the dog is in the drive, that makes it want to receive that food. And even defining drives is a tricky thing. You know, like with part of making this new course, I've been doing a lot of research on I'm trying to define drives. Yep. And fucking hell, what a minefield when you like start trying to get into the data on that, right? Mm. And reading the research, trying to define how many drives does a dog have? What are those drives? Just that alone is a, a minefield. But especially now there's been so many made up along the way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's one study that said there's 17 different drives. Mm. Yeah. And I was like, fucking hell, Jesus Christ. Like I'm cutting it down to five. I'm going to teach them as five drives because I think they're the ones that we can leverage and they're the ones that we can like reinforce. And so it gave me much cause to think about reinforcing with an intrinsic motivator of the drive that you want the dog to be in when it displays the behavior. And so my example to I'm waffling to go back is that when I'm teaching healing, you know, the other yesterday I'm down at Georgie's place, this incredible facility she's got, she's teaching me and others about sort of suspension healing and and how she's getting the prance and all that kind of stuff. And the reinforces that the dog is getting, it's in drive, it's pursuing food, it wants the food, and it will continue to display behaviors that led to that, even when the reinforcer changes and that the just the feet movement that we're working on becomes just a part of the bigger picture of healing, right? That is an intrinsic motivator because the dog's trying to get it. But then I see people who are trying to teach their dog to just chill out at a cafe with them, and the dog finally settles and is quite happy, and then they try and reinforce that behavior with food. And that then is the wrong, the dog's not in that drive. And so in that moment, I perceive that as extrinsic motivation where we're giving the dog food. And of course the dog will take it if it, you know, if it's hungry and, but you've changed the drive set of the dog. And so the behavior that you wanted, you just fucked it up by attempting to reinforce it. You've had to bring the dog out of the very behavior that you wanted by giving it the reinforcer of a different drive when it's in that drive. And I wanted your opinion on that. It's an interesting concept, especially the example that you used of a dog at peace at a cafe. Mm -hmm. If you're rewarding it and you're changing the motivation or the mindset of the dog at that point in time, give me an example. What is the dog thinking about or what do you believe that once you've presented food that the dog is then motivated to do? So the way that I train with food and the way that I, you know, on this podcast and have much content out there showing people is that I click I almost always will be using some kind of marker before I give the dog food. When I'm giving the dog food and training, of course, I just feed dogs out of a bowl sometimes, right? But Or most of the time, really. But when I'm clicking, I want action and activity. Mm -hmm. And so when I am teaching a dog to just chill out and be with me, I always, when I've got a young dog with me or if I've got a dog that I'm teaching skills to, I always carry food and I always carry the clicker if the clicker is the marker for the dog. But it's so rare that I would use it in lifestyle skills. But what about duration? Like if you're asking a dog to maintain duration mm-hmm. of a said skill, mm-hmm. such as sit under the table, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you could call that a, a place where you've put the dog in. Mm-hmm. Why couldn't you give the dog food while it's holding place? Like I understand what you you're could. saying. You totally could. I'm not saying you can't, but I think in that moment you're giving the dog an extrinsic motivator, not an intrinsic motivator. I guess I'd probably... I'd have to look into it further. I'm not really, at this point, I'm not convinced that it would be extrinsic. I still believe that food is highly intrinsic. Mm-hmm. I think if you you were talking about possibly a ball or a toy or something like that, I'd find that probably more extrinsic. 
I probably need a little bit more time to think about it. Mm. Uh, right now it's sort of like I'm on the spot of thinking about it and it's a hard one to, to process in five minutes or less. Yeah. You should get the book. and uh, Yeah, I need to do that. I need to listen to the author's yeah. presentation and his science behind it. Because he I mean, makes this incredible case that extrinsic motivators absolutely work for the most part, work in the moment, and mm. so long as the reinforcers keep coming, the behaviours will continue to happen. He does explain, though, that especially in these human cases where the quality of the work can decrease. So, for example, one of the one of the things they do is like kids readathons. You know, so yep. that's something that they still do. Rip School does that. Yeah, it, it's like how yeah, many books readathons. can you read? Yeah. Well, so what kids do is they read easier, shittier, dumber books because it's about quantity of books, not quality of books, or yep. not the content of the books. So. Kids tend to, if they're at like a an eight-year-old's reading level, will start smashing through books of a five-year-old's reading level yeah, in order to, to gain the reinforcers. Yep. And so, yep, technically you have increased the frequency and likelihood of the behavior of reading books mm. and you've increased the number, the, quali- the quantity of books that that kid would have read during that time, mm. but you've not actually achieved your aim of developing better reading in that kid because he actually took – the easier option. And that's typically what they say in all the human examples is that's typical of what happens when there's like a high rate of reinforcement in any sort of reinforcement schedule. That's an extrinsic motivator for any type of work-based behavior, whereby the higher the reinforcement schedule, the lower quality the work in that you're just doing the work in order to get the reinforcer, not to enjoy the work. Let me ask a question based on my limitations of understanding of this whole concept at this point in time. How could food be considered extrinsic if it's a survivability account, mm-hmm. you know, like something that the dog, all species rely on? Mm-hmm. Like food is something that we need ongoing. Mm-hmm. So in my mind and based on the understandings that I have of science is food is always considered intrinsic. Mm-hmm. So how could we migrate it into the- Do you think it's always though intrinsic? Like I think that food could even be punishment, you know? It definitely can. And I've used cases of that- before where if you reach a point of satiation, even the presentation of extra food can start making you feel uneasy about it. Mm-hmm. So there is that understanding of it. Mm-hmm. There is the the concept. It's like liquids for argument's sake, you know, like you might be drinking an amount of liquid and let's not just think it's alcohol. It could be Coke or anything, soft drink, water, whatever. Mm-hmm. You can be punished by the amount of liquids you take in. I mean, I even know people who've had serious health issues by overhydrating before. Mm-hmm. But even at the point of time where people have hurt their stomach, you know, like they've thrown up, they've been nauseous over examples of so forth, but it's not like they won't do it again. It's mm. not like they'll be they'll be so punished by it. The minute they feel thirsty or hungry, they're straight back at it again. Mm-hmm. Whereas things like you don't need a ball to survive. You want a ball, you know, if you're a dog, mm. and you, you don't necessarily need paper money to survive. Mm. You know, we want it, mm. but those sort of things I kind of look at the extrinsic reinforces. Yeah. But food and water, I'm battling to understand how we can migrate that into the column of being extrinsic. But if you had a dog that you had on such a tight food schedule that it really knew that if I don't start displaying the behaviors that you're paying me for, that the dog really understands. And that's what we hope when we create an operant dog is that the dog goes, okay, I'm going to start doing the things that lead to reinforcement. And if that reinforcement is just food and you are trying to teach the dog to just chill out and just totally don't offer me behaviors, just be right next to me and we'll just hang out together. 
I doubt those things align though with keeping a dog at a feeding schedule that keeps him aware of that, that he better start doing the things that lead to food or else you're going to starve. Well, ultimately I think that's a form of bad training anyway. Like yeah, if, but that's what I meant. That's exactly yeah. what I'm saying is that mm. is bad training. That's yeah. what I'm saying is mm. that when we have these dogs out and we're trying to teach lifestyle skills, lifestyle skills should for the most part come with lifestyle reinforcers. But that doesn't mean that you can't randomly reinforce as well. Like, you know, the whole point of randomization in reinforcement is an unexpected gift at an unexpected time. Mm-hmm. For example, if the dog is underneath you and you're admiring that the dog has been so well behaved and mm-hmm. it's a better characteristic of a normal behaviour that you would not normally see, mm-hmm. why not reinforce the dog impartially? But do you think food in that moment would it would truly reinforce the dog? Because I can tell you of both my dogs. It depends it, what the dog's thinking. That's the issue. Yeah. Herein lies the issue of reinforcement is – what were you thinking at the time that you received reinforcement? Yeah. And that's how fucking technical this can actually be. And this is why good training revolves around the operator, the trainer, the handler understands, I know what you were thinking, that's what I'm reinforcing. The difficulty for us is we can't analyse thinking, we can only analyse behaviour. Like the manifestation of thinking is behavior. Mm. So therefore we can reinforce that because that is in line with what we want. It's the manifestation of the thinking. Like if we've got a dog that's dropped down beside us, but it's looking at another dog thinking, geez, I'd like to kick your ass and you go good and you reinforce the dog. What did you actually reinforce? Did you mm. reinforce the down that while the dog was in position or did you reinforce an unintentional thought that the dog had about kicking another dog's ass or, mm. you know, attacking the other dog? Mm. That's hard to know. And I know I'm getting a little ethereal and a little carried away with this, but still, if you look at how, again, going back to the perception that that former employee had about the reinforcement that I thought was reinforcement but to them was punishment, mm. they were thinking differently. They were not aligned with my thinking, mm. you know. So we didn't have parallels of thinking. I was off tangent to where they were thinking. This is important. This is a very important topic that we're talking about because it's something that's crossed my mind multiples of times when I've been looking at my dog thinking, I wonder what you're thinking here because there's absence of behavior. There's nothing that I can really reinforce right now until I can see some gesture or guidance from you is to say, yeah, that's the right direction. Then I can mark and reinforce it. Mm. Early, I wouldn't have contemplated this. I wouldn't have thought so deeply about it. I would have just been more impulsive about what I'm doing and thought, fuck what the dog's thinking. It's more about what I'm thinking. Ultimately, good training is trying to coerce the dog to think along the parallels of what you're doing as yeah. well. You know, that's what you're trying to do is you're trying to draw the dog into your realm to say, think like me. Mm. And that's good training. I know people will probably be kicking their dash over that one now that we're talking about dash kickers. They're probably thinking, well, that sounds like brainwashing or manipulation. You're fucking goddamn right it is. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's some cases where you need to do that type of thing in order to successfully have that dog live in a society that is hell bent on putting dogs to sleep for fucking for minimal effort these days. Mm. There's a lot of intolerance in a lot of various communities where the dogs aren't allowed to do a lot of the free roaming behaviors that people wish they could have done. Mm. We constantly hear the barkings and the rantings about how battery hens are cruel and it's not nice and we don't like those sort of things. Yet it's never been stopped mm. because we need, we need eggs, mm. you know, like, 
millions and millions of eggs. We need them. Mm. So that's not going to stop in a hurry. We need dogs to behave for their benefit so they can have longevity in communities without them getting trouble. Don't get me wrong, people. When you're listening to me talking about this, I like my dogs to be free-spirited. We talked about this last week on the podcast where I was talking about Randy's, I let him have a lot of liberties with how he comes in the door at night, but I also bribe him to come in the door, you know, like I'm luring him with food. So he's literally following food in because I just don't want the confrontation between him and I. But, you know, like if we're getting onto sporting fields or we're getting into law enforcement training and so forth, and we're getting into dogs saving civilians from explosives, we can't risk those dogs just being at liberty and deciding, fuck it, I'm not going to do what you want today. I'm just yeah. going to run amok. Those are dogs that you really need to be programmed into parallel thinking with the handler to think, yeah, I need to do what you want in order to endure survivalism here because ultimately that is a form of survivalism. Otherwise, they step on a landmine, mm. you know, and take the whole regiment out with them. Mm. Bit of a rant, but it's just thinking out loud of some of the control mechanisms that no, we no. need to put in place sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think – the overarching sort of theme of I'm kind of stuck in thinking about is using the correct reinforcer for the drive that you have the dog in mm. and having the dog in the appropriate drive to bring on the likely, yeah, increase the likelihood of the behavior that you want. Mm. It was one of the, the key takeaways. I'm not sure whether I spoke about it on the podcast, but it was one of the things that like I'd been looking for the words to describe and I haven't had. And then Helmet Riser said it when I was down there with him in that with a lot of the sort of high drive sort of dialed in dogs, like Mally's, for example, when you start doing the obedience and when you're teaching them sort of more and more technical things, the reinforcer is actually like relief that they solve the puzzle. Mm. Say with Remy, for example, he loves the ball and shit and he wants to play with me and do all of that. But you can see he is trying hard to solve the puzzle And when I mark and give him the ball, that is just communication with him like you did it because he's very intrinsically motivated to want to solve the puzzle with me. He considers that part of – that's the game to him. The game in the form of the tug or the reinforcer or whatever is – that's part of it. Mm. But what he truly wants is to the connection of – you know, me and you are working together and we're making you use your brain and you got to work through issues. And my evidence for that is that – if I just go out there now and throw the ball and don't say anything, just throw it, he brings it back to me and starts barking at me. Like, and if I just keep throwing it back and forth, he fucks off with it. And like, if I, like probably with him, I get maybe five or six throws where mm. I can just throw the ball. He, he returns it. And if I just throw it and he returns it and then he'll just sort of like, you know how he does. He stops like 20 odd meters away. He goes sort of off to the side and just sits there like holding the string. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah but he doesn't even bite the ball or anything. He's yeah. got it sitting next to him and he's like, this isn't what I'm here for, mate. I can run around in circles chasing shit by myself. Mm. You're here with me. You need to be guiding me and telling me to do shit and making me work. And then I earn the ball. Then we can play the game of me throwing the ball back and forth. But the actual intrinsic motivator of the dog is that he wants to use his brain. He wants Mm. to figure shit out. Now, whether I cultivated that or whether that's totally him, I don't know. But I think a bit from column A and a bit from column B. Exactly. Mm. So then you look at Valerie, for example. She just wants to chase shit around. That's mm. what she's motivated to do. And all the behaviors that I have. So like you remember how tight obedience I had on her. Like I at one point was jokingly but only mildly going to do IPO with her. Yeah. Right? Like she had at that level of obedience. She could easily have done a BH and probably gone further. Easy. 
easily. Mm. Mate, she's a fucking wild animal now. Yeah. Right? Like she barely knows her name. Yeah, but she's an old grandma. Yeah, but I don't – I've stopped reinforcing her because yeah. I don't do those things anymore. Yeah. And those behaviours that are there because they were totally extrinsically taught. They're right? going like, through extinction. Yeah, but mm. like she's like, unless you're offering me the payment of the things, I'm not doing those things. Yeah. Where Remy is the opposite. He's like, I want to do the things and starts harassing me. I want to do the work where she just wants to have the payment. And because I don't need anything of her, I give her the payments for free. So the behaviors have disappeared. However, I might add that you still ask and expect things of Remy that you don't of Val anymore. Yeah, totally. And that hasn't died off yet. And I, I believe that if you stopped asking and gave him more liberties, then you would probably find that he would follow the path of Val as well and you'd see extinction setting in. Yeah. It's the general path of most species to do so. Unless, as you said, you know, unless it's deeply intrinsic and it really is lying within him that I must do this, like it's a part of my life ethos, this makes me feel incomplete to not do this. Yeah then I feel that, yes, he would probably harass you the same way. Whereas it's unusual that you don't bring him in on a Thursday night and do like a 15-minute routine with him. So therefore it is still yeah. habitually required. So at the new shop that I have, yeah. right, it's dog training Wonderland, right? There's three bite suits hanging on racks. There's balls and everything all over the place. It's dog training Wonderland. Yep. And when I go down there with him, of course this is a big element of like the – you know, the training and the um, inhibitions that I've put into him a fair bit. But he he just – if I'm working on the computer there and the, both dogs are down, Val just does a thing, runs around in circles. Remember, just barks at me. Like, we are in training Wonderland, man. Like, we should be training. And I'm like – I give him a ball. I'm like, just go do your own thing, dude. Like, And he's like, I don't fucking want the ball, man. Yep. I want to earn the ball. But this is a very new enterprise deal. Totally, like you'll, totally. You'll probably but, find there'll be a fading effect on But that's that. what I'm curious about, right? Yep. Like, how long will he just be like, hey, I want to work? He can have any of these things. You can have them. They're just laying around. Go mm. grab a ball. There's a bite suit over there. If you want to bite it, bite it. He has no interest. He's like barking at me saying like, I have to earn this stuff. Mm. And I'm like, you have it. You can have it as have it for free. And he's like, I don't want it for free. That's not how I'm motivated. Well, okay. So there's the other part of that too is he understands that the joy of the game is not just running around with it by myself. But that's you, right. You've ingrained in him over a long period of time, like most of his life, like the best thing that you can do is bring this back and we can have a bit of backwards and forwards with it. So is it a true intrinsic motivator or is it extrinsic that I've I've done such a good job of teaching him that it persists even though I'm not asking for it or reinforcing it? Well, it's a good question. And like I said, it's one that I'm only spitballing a lot here because I've had this less than one business day and I really haven't had a lot of time to think about it. But nonetheless, it's fucking fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's super. It's fascinating and it's probably something that does require some more critical thinking. Yeah. Especially on my behalf because I really haven't thought too hard about it before. Yeah. Well, so that was what was like that's been kind of weighing on me today especially as I was walking past and I saw, you know, there's this coffee shop dog. The cafe just up the street from me has this dog. It's the owner's dog. It's just loose in the shop, goes out, and it's a dog-friendly place. You can bring your dog. It's fucking amazing that I haven't seen a giant dog fight there, right? Frankly, like it has to come at some point because there's all these people with these fucking amazing dogs. Like it's the sort of thing that a dog trainer looks at and goes, oh, my God, this is a powder keg waiting to explode. (laughs) Yeah. But- so far, Hasn't no explosion, happened. right? Mm. Like there's just a bunch of flat, happy dogs just walking around doing their own thing. Yep. There's a dog that is like the owner's dog. It just walks around the cafe. I don't think it even wears a collar. It sat with me and ate breakfast with me the other day, like just does its own thing. 
but there's no one like telling that dog be a flat coffee shop dog. It enjoys doing that. Mm. That's who it is. It's just interesting to me. Then I see people who are trying to teach a dog to be a coffee shop dog and the dog finally settles and they're like, good boy. And they give him the food. And now the other dog's like, okay, I want more of that food. Like, and starts, what, what do I have to do? Kicks into drive yeah. and starts like, mm. you know, harassing and, so, and so doing it, the opposite behaviors of what the person was trying to reinforce. Yeah. It's an interesting observation and something that now I'm inspired to look deeper into it. As you were telling me that story, it reminded me about Kim from Grey Gum Cafe, the, one of the bike riding cafes that I got up to on Putty Road. She's got a dog there that she rescued called Shiloh. They're on 50 acres there or whatever, but the cafe itself, hundreds of people come there every weekend, hundreds and hundreds of people, anyone going in camper vans or car shows. So there's a lot of people who randomly turn up with the whole family and their dog. And Shiloh will go running over to their dog, wagging his little stump. He's got a little stumpy tail. Go running over, wagging his little stump at the dog. Even if dogs like full on go him, he just runs away. Yeah. He just goes, oh, fuck you. You don't want to play. Yeah. And I always think, oh, man, Shiloh's getting in their face too much. He's a friendly dog. Like he's already coming around trying to scab your egg and bacon off you. But there's been a couple of times I've said to Kim, aren't you worried? And she said he's never been aggressive to another dog. In fact, if, if another dog responds to him in, in a negative way, he just runs away. Yeah. And I've witnessed it on multiple occasions where most dogs want to interact with him and play with him. They find him interesting and, you know, they're curious and they're social. It's lovely. But, you know, you'll occasionally get a dog that will fire up and, you know, like the people go, oh, I don't know why that happened. And I thought, oh, I do. You know, yeah. you just walked your dog into a dog-friendly place. but. Well, that's not friendly. That's the beauty of most dogs is like, you know, as dog trainers, I've, I've talked about this so often. We have such a skewed and biased view of dog behavior because we only see the problems, mm. you know, like we have, most of us have reasonably high drive dogs ourselves that require a fair amount of management because we want to do the training component. So we need that higher level of drive. And the other dogs that we see are the ones that we get called in to help. And we forget that there's, Millions and millions of millions. Well, of, I don't because I, I – Oh, you see them here. I yeah. see them here. Like we have 20, 30 dog socialization daycare yeah. where there is no problems. Yeah. I mean I was out filming a dog today running around chasing his air pixies while little Lemmy the boxer was telling me the song of his people and that's a normal day. Yeah. We see a herd of dogs who are fine. Yeah. They get along with each other, especially up at Terrigal with the girls up there. Like they have enormous socialization groups up at Terrigal. They can have 20, 30 dogs together while they've got two or three girls running around looking after them. And they're all mixing with each other just, just fine. Like just having just awesome time. being dogs. Yeah. You know, and they're getting along. The girls match them well. They keep an eye on their behavior. If there's any outliers in the group, they just take them out and say, yeah. well, three strikes, buddy, and you're not coming back in. So we're aware of good behavior. We're also aware of bad behavior as well because yeah. like you and like most other dog trainers, we're also presented with dogs that the are problems. causing problems. The problems. That's yeah. I, I find myself regularly going to my favorite like dog park in my area, which is on a full busy road and there's no fences. There's a, a little, you know, like a little stone wall that's a foot and a half high. So like any dog can jump into there, but if you don't have a wonderful dog, you can't go there. It, there's tons of dogs always off leash. If you don't have a dog that's going to run into traffic or isn't going to come back when you call it, you ain't going there. Mm. And it's refreshing even to just go and see it and just see all these people. And they're the people that we complain about. You know, they bring their beers on a Friday afternoon and they're standing around. They're there with coffee in the morning and drinks in the evening and it's a very social experience for them. 
and their dogs are just doing dog stuff, running around, and they probably don't even recall them. They just like go, hey, we're leaving, and the dog has like a little enough separation anxiety that it goes with them when they go. <laughs> you know, yeah. so like the right amount of separation anxiety that keeps a dog sort of aware of what you're doing, but it doesn't panic when you leave the house. You know, like that perfect level. There's millions of those dogs out yeah. there. There's absolute millions yeah. and millions of them yeah. out there. And they're the people who are never trying – the people that raise those dogs, first of all, they got a good dog, Yeah, but they're never trying to fucking switch drives on the dog because nah, – the, They just won the luck lottery. Yeah, and the dog yeah. just goes like, oh, this is what's appropriate here. Yep. And, of course, every now and again the dog gets it wrong and people are like, hey, fucking knock it off, you know what I mean? Like mm. they're reasonable people of the past that just give the dog a little jolt on the collar or something like that and the dog goes, oh, shit, that I did the wrong thing. You know, mm. these like very soft, biddable dogs. Yeah. And they really quickly just find the level and they're happy. Well, read the book. Punished by Rewards. Yeah, it's worth looking at for sure. I'm now inspired to listen to it because I really need to get my head around. Yeah, it's not dog training at all. Like he doesn't touch on any, there's no dog training parts. It's not about that. It's about people. See, here's the thing is how many dogs are listening to this podcast and benefiting from it? (laughs) We're not training dogs through this podcast. We're talking about human behavior. Yeah, Like in some concepts that we're talking about, even though we go off tangent sometimes, it's still the story, the ethos, the path of how to be a better human to your fellow humans, to your children. You know, I listened to something remarkable by Jordan Peterson today where he was just talking about how amazing parents are through the eyes of their children. Oh, yeah. You know, and he said, you might be a bitter person or so forth, but you don't want to do that. There's a bunch of people who talk about Jordan Peterson being this evil person, but I've never seen evil from him. I've only seen him trying to mend and heal relationships between parents and their children, like raising more robust, more biddable, more thoughtful, more loving, more caring children. I've never heard him say, turn on your parents or hate women or anything like that. I've never heard him say anything like that. I've only heard him talking about let's raise, you know, when we've got active little boys, let's let them run the legs off them and then come back in and let them sleep. Yeah. Leave them be and let them sleep and then run the legs off them tomorrow. Let them exercise the – and I know that doesn't fall into every single category and he doesn't assume that it does either, but it was a nice message. I thought it was well played and that's what I like about the podcast that you and I do or the episodes that you and I do is – It's not just about the blind leading the blind and do as I say or this is how you're going to work out with dog training because it doesn't play out that way. And Mm. all our listeners aren't going to be in Mondio or PSA. As much as we talk about our love and our joy of working dog sports, there's still a tiny fucking population in working dog sports. In Australia, there's probably about 20 clubs around the whole of Australia with 20 people in them. That's it. Yeah, That's the whole population of working dogs in this fucking country. Yeah, And that's a... That's, that's generous. A, yeah. That's generous. Yeah. Half of those people won't talk to each other. And that's sad and that that breaks my heart. And the other half don't trial. And then the other half don't trial, yeah. yeah. And that's that's even more heartbreaking. But the point is we're sending a message to people on loving and enjoying a dog, yeah. you know, and being a, a good person in your community at the same time. There's a bunch of life lessons that we all learn from this type of stuff. And the great thing for me, mate, is that every time we sit down together and talk about these concepts, I feel like I've gained something, I've learned something, and I think about things a little bit more deeply. Mm. Things that have troubled me in the past, this has been a a conduit of healing for me. It's something that has chased a demon away when it's been sitting around in my head. And I know from the multiples of sharings from our listeners where they have sent through the discussion group or even through Instagram, through our Instagram channel, 
people are saying, you guys were talking about a subject and it hit me in the feels. Mm -hmm. And there's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of messages of love and appreciation that we've received back just by bantering along and sharing our vulnerabilities or even the vulnerabilities of other people. So that in itself is very cathartic to me. That's an intrinsic motivator. Yes, it is. (laughs) All right. Hey, that's it for the Arnold Schwarzenegger podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You like what you hear. Oh, before we finish. I thought you were doing an Arnie voice then when you did the, get all the chopper. (laughs) The last thing I'd like to encourage people to do before we officially wind up, the chimp empire. Oh, yeah? I'm not going to talk about this one. We might leave that to discuss on the next episode. But it was uh, Gavin who trains with us in PSA. Mm-hmm. He encouraged me to watch it. I said, oh, no, I'm not really interested in it. Just another thing. I'm really glad I did. It okay. was so well done and really, really thoughtfully put together. And I love how they just let it play out and let the chimps be chimps and documented the politics of the communities or the colonies that the chimps had generated. Oh, fucking fantastic. Did I ever tell you about the time I was in the chimp enclosure at Taronga? No. Oh. Most people, including Casey, have told me how terrifying chimps can be. It's terrifying. It's legitimate fucking terrifying. Yeah. Like it's like being in a maximum security mental asylum. Yeah. And the actual display was shut and so they were in there like, you know, not open to the public enclosure. And the way it worked, if I'm kind of remembering correctly, is like you're in the cage. So they have this whole area and when you go into it, like the cage is around you. There's like this hallway that you can walk down. And there's like these lines marked on the floor of like, don't cross those lines or they can reach you. Yeah. And they just like, cause they're so full of testosterone. They're fucking like, they just go mental mm. and they start swinging around and punching stuff and going like, it is terrifying. Yeah. Like, well, watch the chimp empire. It's, yeah. oh man, it, it is absolutely life changing. Yeah. Mm. All right. I'll check it out. Yeah. All right. That's it for the chimp empire podcast. If you like what you hear, <laughs> please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from and then do it to another one. Yep. Get on the mailing list. That's super important. Who knows what's happening in the world? You need to jump on our mailing list. There's links, you know, all over the place, probably in the show notes. Mm, 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 mm. If you <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you want to support the show, jump into Patreon. I just put something new and exciting into Patreon. I hope that the people who are in there Did enjoyed that. Like a thing on how to film yourself dog Oh, training. yeah, yeah, yeah. Big um, tutorial on how that works. Yeah, Nick was telling us about it. Yep, he wants to disseminate it amongst he the does. crowd. Yes, he does. But in Patreon right now. If you want to check it out, jump in there, check it out. It's a pretty good video. I'm happy with it. Yep. You can buy stuff from us. You can buy merch. Spring, get on it. Buy some merch. Yep. It's all there. The best thing to do about intrinsically feeling good about yourself, just keep throwing money at us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Daddy needs more microphones. Rode just brought out a bunch of new products. Oh, I know. You showed me all their wonderful stuff. Yep. Yep. See the new Apple goggles? Apple Vision. Apple Vision. Yeah. Vision Pro or something. Yeah, maybe we could do podcasts with Yeah, virtual podcasts with those yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we better start saving. It would be ridiculous. actually I was I was actually thinking how fun it would be to edit with them on. Yeah, that's what so that's what I was saying to you, because they're crazy expensive. They're yeah. three and a half grand. US but just dollars. having that massive screen in front of you yeah. where you can take it anywhere instead of me being restricted by having to have my laptop. If I was yeah. sitting on a plane, I can totally. easily That's what exactly what I was thinking video editing. Okay, well good. Guys, um, we Patreon, need Patreon, please we go, need go nuts. We need them for vid- editing videos and, and podcasts. We need yeah, to be was, in complete virtual it would be, reality. It would be amazing. That's where their value is, is yeah, to yeah. replace all the screens. Yeah. Because, like, you know, when I'm editing, like when I'm deep in the editing, I've got three screens going I know, to be it's able fucking to, to crazy. do it properly. Yeah. But then 
I imagine that in the future you'll be able to have like an infinite number of giant screens within that thing and you're just projecting the different parts onto it. It'd be fucking great. Without lugging all this hardware all over the place, yeah. that'd be great. Yeah. yeah. All right, so sling us some dollars so we can get some augmented reality headsets, yep. guys. Come on, we need it. <laughs> All right, if you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is jump into the Facebook discussion group. Lots mm. of cool stuff happening there. You can group source information, got something to say, got a topic for the show, put it into there. Other people get to discuss it. We can sort of have a look and continue to discuss it on the show. That would be fun. Yep. Or you can shoot us an email, yeah, info at canonparadigm.com. Au revoir.